This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, racial equity, defunding and demilitarizing the police, and the need for a new round of funding for individuals and small businesses in the face of spiking rates of COVID across the country. All of this has many of us as progressive activists wondering how to contextualize all of it, and most importantly, how and where to take action. We are joined by Indivisible's Legislative Director, Mary Small, who I will tell you in advance does a masterful job of breaking down these very complex issues and then directing us on how and where to apply pressure for change. Also, with ballots just arriving in your mailboxes, we will revisit our conversations with select legislative candidates. This week, 5th LD Senate candidate Ingrid Anderson. That is all ahead, so stay with us. With so much going on in the country right now with issues of racial equity, the pandemic, economic recovery, and so much more, many Indivisible members are wondering what they can be doing in response, especially as many of us are still stuck at home. Mary Small is Indivisible's legislative director, and she is here to talk about Indivisible's current legislative priorities and to lay out some actions that we can be taking around them. Hey, Mary, thank you for joining us again. How are you and yours doing right now? We're doing all right, and I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So let's just jump right in and talk about some of Indivisible's legislative priorities. I want to start with racial equity. The events of the last month or so, everything that we've seen in response to the murder of George Floyd, Breonna, Breonna Taylor, many others, it seems to have opened up a unique window of opportunity here to advance racial equity. We've seen public opinion basically invert on the issue of Black Lives Matter with the majority of people now in support. And I think a lot of people are wondering, how do we as progressive activists keep the momentum going on this? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that that's totally, that's totally right. And that's, that's the question. Um, I think just a couple of things. I mean, you know, it, it can look like this big new possibility burst onto the scene out of nowhere. And I think we would be all remiss not to actually look back in time to the long on-ramp, right, to get us here um, from Ferguson and long before that, all the way to here and the kind of scaffolding and infrastructure that particularly Black organizers have been building since that since that time. And it, it feels like we we're in this particular moment where because of uh, the pandemic and, and the recession and the increased precarity that all of us are experiencing, not equally, of course, right? Like we're all in the same storm, but not the same boat. Um, But because of that storm that we're all in increased precarity, this realization, um, both of how intertwined all these systems of economic inequality, inequality in policing, inequality in health outcomes are all woven together. And also the critical necessity of meeting the moment with transformative change. Um, And so I, I feel like tremendous energy uh, in this moment, for sure. And I think your question about how we keep that up is is right on. I think uh, we're so lucky that the way that this question is being framed is in a deeply intersectional way. And so even though the spark that lit this was about police brutality and police murdering Black folks, um, the responses that are coming out, the policy solutions that are being demanded are, yes, um, about defunding the police, about major changes to the way that law enforcement is handled, but are also about economic justice, are also about health inequities. Um, are also about political representation and political power. And so I think that as we're headed towards the election, as people are more and more tuning in um, to local and state and and national elections, um, as the uprisings themselves are really 
um, kind of ripening and we have this new uh, legislative proposal on the table, the Breathe Act, I think we're going to talk about later. Um, I think that there's a lot of avenues to direct like more sustainable burn energy um, towards keeping this at the forefront of how we're, we're confronting these, these trio of crises of a, a health crisis and economic crisis and, and the ongoing effects of s- systemic racism as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, uh, and I think the, the approach really matters because, and first of all, the, I, I love the way that you've tied all that together. And I think the approach does matter because, you know, Indivisible, I think, is looking to be uh, in allyship uh, with a number of different groups on this front. And one of the ways that you just mentioned was being in support of the BREATHE Act. This is something that I hadn't heard about until you uh, brought it up to me when we were speaking in advance of, of this interview. What can you tell us about the BREATHE Act? Um, yeah, it's this really beautiful, expansive platform that has come out. It's a project of the Movement for Black Lives and the Electoral Justice Project working together. And it's, I think, a way to capture some of the demands coming up from the streets and translate them into right now a policy framework and it's being turned into legislative text like as as we are talking. Um, and, and you know, like I was saying before, even though the spark of these particular uprisings in this moment were about police brutality, um, the the response, the solutions that we're bringing in res- that that not you know that that the movement for Black Lives and the Electoral Justice Project are bringing in response to that is much broader. So this the Breathe Act has these four components. Uh, one is about divesting federal resources from incarceration and policing, and then there's a section about investing in new approaches to community safety. Uh, a, a section about allocating new money to build healthy, sustainable uh, communities, and then a fourth section about holding officials accountable. Um, and so it takes a, a, a narrower spark and then brings a really full-throated intersectional policy analysis uh, in response to it in a way that I think is beautiful and gives us so much room to grow um, in so many different legislative arenas in, in the months ahead and also electorally. Well, so then what is the, for want of a better term, game plan? Are there certain uh, members of Congress who are being approached right now uh, who are working in concert on you know, advancing this piece of legislation? Where do things sit right now? Yeah, so when this was, uh, the framework uh, was rolled out, uh, representatives Presley and Tlaib uh, were there to, to champion it and talk about it. Um, so, you know, perhaps the folks that you would expect to see at the forefront of this kind of effort, we were cheering them on, as were many other folks. And then, you know, there's ongoing conversations with other members of Congress, but as your viewers know from having followed many pieces of legislation, uh, you know, you have to have the legislative text sort of at least mostly on paper before you can really begin recruiting uh, sponsors and endorsers. So there's a little bit of a sequence to this yeah. um, that we're that we're in the process of um, that we will be you know supporting as it as it moves ahead. But I think that that's where we are in the sequence right now. So you know you were you started out this question asking about um, the uprisings and how we keep this on the front burner. And I think um, this is sort of exactly how this is supposed to go. Like massive uprisings, there are still protests happening in countries all uh, all across, uh, in, sorry, in cities all across the country. We have the upcoming strike, um, and then you're starting to see the transfer into policy demand. So both something like really big and sweeping, like the Breathe Act, but then you're also seeing these little pieces that are coming out in other things. So as Congress is considering the appropriations bills for next year, so the funding bills. There's policing implications in a ton of those, and they're actually conversations um, this time around in a way that they weren't before in the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which is going to be up in both chambers later um, later this month. You have Section 1033, which is the program that transfers military equipment to domestic policing that's under scrutiny in a much deeper way 
um, than it has been before. And you have active amendments in both chambers on that, right? And so you have this like big sweeping umbrella piece of legislation in the BREATHE Act, but then you're seeing the ripple effects of it in all of the other pieces of legislation that are moving through Congress. And that's certainly true for your viewers uh, at the local and state level as well. So in terms of the BREATHE Act, we will watch that space and, and we will be standing by for specific actions. You mentioned the NDAA push. And of course, the chair of the Armed Services Committee, Representative Adam Smith, uh, is overseeing a lot of this. And, and we're talking about a push to demilitarize the police. What can you tell us about this in terms of, of actions that we should be following as indivisible members, especially those of us not only here in Washington, but people who live in uh, Smith's district, the ninth district? Yeah, well, first of all, shout out to a bunch of the local indivisible groups that have been in conversation with Representative Smith throughout the whole throughout the whole year, right? This as a, a place where he holds particular jurisdictional power. Um, and there's been some really great indivisible group in- engagement with him. It's really interesting to see the difference between last year and this year. Last year, uh, the Democrats in the House really fought for a bunch of progressive priorities to make it in the House version of the NDAA. And then when the Senate and the House conferenced their two versions, progressives lost on almost everything. And so this year, we see the House Democrats advancing a much narrower uh, NDAA that doesn't include most of those provisions. So it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't repeal the authorization of the use of military force. It doesn't include uh, protections for um, transgender service members. It doesn't include a prohibition on um, money going to the border wall. Some of these things that were that were real wins in the House version of the bill last year. So that's been an interesting choice point. Um, for, for him to take. Some of the things that we're particularly keeping an eye on are there's a, a growing effort to support amendments to cut the top line number uh, for defense spending. To be totally candid, not out of an expectation that that is going to become law this year. Sure, um, but it is discretionary, and I think that's important to note. that it is the, It's my understanding that the defense budget is the largest discretionary portion of our budget. So, you know, politically speaking, mm-hmm. we can actually uh, apply some pressure there, correct? Oh, it's a massive amount of money. I mean, like, unimaginable uh, in terms of the quantity of money. And so... A few different things. I mean, I think just the sheer volume of resources that go towards militarized solutions then end up really presupposing a lot of what our foreign policy responses will be. So there's just like the overall absolute number that is not values aligned for progressives and needs to come down. But there's also this trade-off dynamic, right? Which is like the more money we put into defense spending, the less money that's available to go into non-defense discretionary accounts, which support critical, you know, community support services all across the country in health and education and housing and food supports, right? And then also if you start thinking about um, like how we want to put forward a just economic recovery as we're coming out of this recession that is inclusive of all people um, and that actually begins to decarbonize the economy as climate change is hurtling down on us, right? All of that takes money. And so there's like the the moral question of the absolute volume of resources going to defense spending, but there's also a trade-off about the way that we're allocating funding in ways that don't help communities and are actually quite harmful. Um, and so part of what's happening in the NDAA fight this year uh, is laying the groundwork uh, for dramatic reductions in defense spending next year if we have um, 
control of more levers of the federal government. Thank you for encapsulating all of that. This is enormously complex stuff, and you have a real knack for being able to take these these big ideas and being able to, to chunk them down in ways that I think are, are very digestible, for me anyway. And I will mention to listeners that we are going to be having a town hall with Adam Smith speaking specifically about the NDAA coming up here in a few weeks, and we will definitely be talking about so much of what you just laid out there. I want to back up just a little bit and talk about hashtag defund the police. We know that this has been... Uh, interpreted in a number of different ways. And I'm wondering what Indivisible's official stance is on defund the police. So Indivisible has come out in clear support of defunding the police. And, you know, it gets it's, it's actually tied back into that NDA conversation that we were just having, which is where you put resources uh, is a moral decision, but it also predetermines the way you respond to problems. That come up. And the fact that the United States at the federal and state and local level has just poured billions and billions of dollars into institutions of incarceration and control um, and policing has then led us down this path where we respond to more and more and more problems with that as a solution that's not working, um, that is playing out inequitably across communities, and that is resulting in these, you know, um, high rates of police murders of black folks, indigenous folks, other folks of color. Um, and so I think there's that piece of it, which is like where you put your money shapes how you respond to problems. Also where you put your money means you're not putting it in other places that actually would help communities thrive in schools, in housing, in infrastructure, right? And I think the other piece of it from, from individuals perspective is a lot of your listeners participated in the defund hate campaign um, that Indivisible has been a proud part of. And so um, for folks who might not be familiar, the defund hate campaign uh, goes after funding for ICE and CBP for immigration and customs enforcement and customs and border protection. So the two arms of immigration enforcement in our country. And the logic behind it is exactly the same, that so much money has been poured into these agencies and they're terrorizing immigrant communities all across the country. And that the, the kind of most specific intervention that we can make is actually to take resources away from this like rapidly metastasizing machine um, to begin to divert towards different policy solutions. And the thing is, inside of the defund hate campaign, we've actually seen tremendous gains. So over the course of the Trump administration, the defund hate campaign has been um, you know, with a lot of activists and other movement support, has blocked over $8 billion in sought-after funding for ICE and CBP. And in the funding bill that the Democrats in the House just introduced, it just actually passed the committee yesterday for, for DHS, we see for the first time this dramatic reduction in funding for immigration detention. It slashes the detention system um, in half. Actually, it's even less than in half. Um, and so, you know, I think for the folks who are running the defund hate campaign, like that's not enough, but it's a hell of a first step towards beginning to pull resources um, out of a system that has been so harmful. And so I think within the, def the context of the defund hate campaign, we've seen that having this like laser eyed focus on the money as a place um, that you're tracking has, has paid dividends. And the one thing that I'll say for, for your listeners um, is that I feel like there's often this like false uh, like pitting of uh, it reforms versus defunding that gets brought up. And the thing about going after policing reforms or in the case of defund hate reforms of ICE and CBP is that they're really easy to hollow out. 
it's really easy to have a reform that's actually just about better reporting or better tracking or transparency, or there's not actually a follow-up plan for, for implementation, or there's not accountability when it's not followed. The thing about money is you can't hollow out a budget cut. Well, I, this, this actually brings up a very interesting point because I think a lot of people had reservations about the language of defund the police and, and felt that that was maybe pushing the discussion a little bit too far. But what you're saying is if you water the language down and, you know, say, you know, let's hashtag reform the police was, was what you heard, heard a lot of people saying in response, that doesn't get the same results for all the reasons that you're laying out, right? Yes, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Because you know, a demand around cutting funds is much harder to hollow out than a demand around reform. And the other thing that folks have to hold on to, and I think as folks who are building our own political power and wielding it more and more, um, is that there's a there's a process right between the demand in the street and what gets signed into law. And if you make your demand in the street what you want signed into law, you've got no space for movement. And you're going to lose that fight, right? You're going to end up somewhere different than where you, um, than where you might have been otherwise. Yeah. And so, demands in the street, demands in protest, should always feel a little bit uncomfortable. And if they don't, you haven't targeted your demand right um, to kind of set yourself up for that long arc of how you go from mobilization to transformed laws and policies and systems that make up the society that we inhabit together. It's roughly similar to the dynamics of the Overton window, that you're, you're pushing the, the center of the conversation uh, further in the direction that you would like it to be. Um, because we want to center on actions uh, during our discussion here, what are you calling on members to do specifically in support of defund the police? Yeah, so this is kind of a funny moment for Indivisible because we uh, so often focus on federal action. And as I mentioned, there are pieces of this that are federal. Um, there is there is funding that is granted from the federal government to police in the appropriations process. We'll be keeping an eye on that. There is down the road the BREATHE Act that'll be moving. But police are funded at the local level. Like that is where the funding for policing comes from. Um, and so the actual best way for your listeners to engage in this is actually to engage in their local budget fights. Like that is where policing budgets in this country are housed and that's where the fight's at. Um, and I think the good news is for your listeners who are wanting to do that is that those budgets are being contested and in many cases cut uh, in communities and cities all across the country. So they have they have uh, fellow fighters if they uh, go after those city budgets, but that's really the local for the fight this, this go around. And I have a link for people uh, in the show notes that will take you directly to a place where you can take action on that. I also want to get your take on, uh, you, you had touched on, on COVID and how there's a racial component insofar. It, it is disproportionately impacting BIPOC people. We know right now that Black and Latinx people are three times more likely to contract the virus and twice as likely to die from it. We also know that there are a number of reasons for this. They're, they can be socioeconomic, uh, environmental, there are systemic racist issues uh, at, at play here. How would Indivisible like to address this particular disparity? Yeah, it's such a great question um, and is at the forefront of how we're thinking about all of our advocacy around the ongoing uh, kind of the, the sequence of legislation that's passing Congress, right? So um, there was the CARES Act, um, and now the most recent piece is that the House has passed the HEROES Act that got pushed over to the Senate, and the Senate so far has taken no action um, to respond to that, even as we're barreling towards these like sunset dates for some of the most critical economic supports that people are receiving to survive the pandemic and associated recession. I think to your question about the incredible racial disparities, um, 
maybe to break it down a little bit, I think that there's probably maybe three pieces that we want to think about. Um, so one is making sure that we actually continue to have access to real data about what's going on. Um, and that's, that's uh, a very dicey proposition right now with, with Trump moving the, uh, the reporting data away from the CDC. That's exactly right. And I, I do actually just want to lift up one of our champions, um, Representative Presley, Two negotiations ago, got a piece um, got a piece signed into law about tracking uh, the racial disparities within um, within the COVID data. Um, like she saw this coming, she saw the attempt to hide the data overall and the racial breakdown of the data, and was out in front of that. So I really want to give her props for for that. But I think making sure that we contest the secrecy. Um, and the federal government trying to, at best, hide, at worst, manipulate um, the health data is a critical piece um, for being able to make sure we have update information about, again, what's happening with the pandemic at all, and particularly the way that it's affecting um, Black and Latinx communities. The second piece is about making sure that the policies that move forward aren't exclusive, that people aren't deliberately excluded from them. Um, and so when you look at unemployment insurance, when you look at the stimulus checks, when you look at some of the other supports um, that have been put in place to protect small businesses, um, many of them, because of their eligibility criteria, cut out different parts of our communities. Um, so like one example of this when it comes to immigrant inclusion, which affected many, many Latinx families and also black immigrant families and others, uh, is that the only people eligible for stimulus checks were folks who had social security numbers. And so you have, um, many mixed status families where some members of the family are U.S. citizens, some members of the family, um, may not be, who were not able to access that basic life-saving support because of the eligibility criteria for the stimulus check. So data not excluding people. And then we need to go a step further in making sure that not only are we not intentionally excluding people, but we're making sure that the supports that are being put in place actually reach the most vulnerable members of our society and the people who are most likely to be excluded. So an example of this is the um, loans which can be converted into grants for small businesses. Uh, and we saw that part of what happened with these is that it was just more convenient for banks to deal with massive companies where they had to do a single, you know, a single application, uh, and then they got their, their cut of a huge amount of money. And that having to do a bunch of small businesses was like a lot more paperwork for less money for them. And so they were incentivized to work with big corporations and a bunch of small um, businesses, including people of color owned small businesses got shut out of the process. Um, and so those, those three buckets, do you have the data? Are you being careful to include everyone? And then are you making sure that these, um, supports um, and policy solutions are proactively accessible to the people most likely to be um, marginalized and unable to access them is like the framework that we're trying to use, whether we're talking about um, health policy, whether we're talking about economic supports, whether we're talking about how we're securing the election and making sure people have a safe way to exercise their right to vote. Um, I don't know if that, that answers it, but I think that's a little bit of Oh, the that definitely that answers it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you bring up the HEROES Act as well and talk about how that's been stalled in, uh, in the Senate since it passed the House in May. I know that there's a, a plan to jumpstart this. The Senate is returning from recess uh, on Monday, July 20th, so that's next week. And mm -hmm. Indivisible is advocating extending unemployment insurance because we know that this is set to run out. And we also know that infection rates are spiking all across the nation right now, uh, including here in Washington. So people are not going to be able to return to work and are going to need this sort of relief. Uh, Indivisible is pushing for extending unemployment with the inclusion of something called automatic stabilizers. Can you explain what that means? 
this is going to bring out the policy nerd in me. I'll try <laughs> to keep it in check. But the so the basic idea of an automatic stabilizer is that you you put a few things on autopilot to make the life of the country easier, right? So the, one of the way that this will work is that basically when the unemployment rate from COVID or anything gets above a certain point, unemployment insurance also increases. And as unemployment goes down, so do the economic supports. Um, and so you tie them together in an automatic relationship. And part of what this does is takes desperately needed support for people all across the country out of the hands of the whims of Congress, right? We've seen Congress um, be dysfunctional and unable to pass life-saving support for people. That's what's happening right now with the Senate refusing to take up the HEROES Act. We've seen Republicans uh, withhold life-saving support to exact a political cost from Democrats. And so a thing that we don't want, right, is if we do have good outcomes in November, which I know your listeners are fighting like hell to win. Yes, they are. We don't want to waste a huge part of our political capital coming into the next Congress having to re-win something rather than being able to take off right away on winning the new parts of a progressive agenda that communities need, structural democracy reform, you know, and sure. just an inclusive economic recovery. And so the more things that can actually just be tied automatically to different economic metrics, rather than having to be rehashed in Congress every time so that Republicans can take their pound of flesh, um, the better that is for communities, the better that is for the functionality of decision makers, um, and the better outcomes it'll have for communities across the country. And by the way, I brought you on uh, for this policy nerd stuff. So, so you know, don't hold back at all. Um, you know, the $64,000 question for those of us who live in blue states with two Democratic senators is what should we be doing to pressure our senators to ultimately pressure McConnell to move on the HEROES Act? Yeah, um, I really want to encourage all of your listeners who live in blue states who think that their senators are like supportive of the good policies um, to, to not think that they've like done their part and check out. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done to push uh, Democratic senators to really hold a high level of ambition. Um, first of all, because we're committed to actually winning another round of economic and health supports um, for communities through this next round of negotiations that'll hopefully happen between when the Senate comes back into recess and when they leave again for August recess. Like we do want to win and pass legislation. And we're also staring down an election in just a few months. And part of the work that we have to do is make it so clear for voters the stark choice that they have between the inaction of Republican senators who have refused to bail out the people of this country and the bold visionary proposals the Democrats are bringing forward to not just uh, help people survive this crisis, but also help us move towards a better future that doesn't just replicate the inequities and injustices of the status quo. Um, and so having a high level of ambition, art articulating over and over again that stark difference between inaction and visions to not just help people survive, but thrive, like that it also helps us electorally. Um, and so I think both to win the legislation and then to win in November, continuing to push on Democratic senators to keep a high level of ambition is absolutely critical. Perfect. Thank you for uh, for framing it that way. I think that's that's just incredibly important. Just one last question uh, for you, and I'll let you go. Um, Indiv Indivisible also has an action that is just for leaders right now around pushing for uh, COVID relief. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so we're piloting a new thing that we're really uh, excited. That's happened in a bit of an ad hoc way before, um, but we're we're more formally piloting where we're pulling together a working group of indivisible group leaders who want to like really go in on COVID advocacy uh, to work in a direct working group um, with some of the national staff to have sort of two-way information flow. Because there's a ton of indivisible groups that are talking regularly with their representatives or their senators um, about these packages. We're talking to folks in D.C., uh, we're really excited about the, the opportunity to have a working group with more two-way flow of information where we're crafting strategies together um, to figure out how we can, you know, even as we're all moving into electoral mode, really fighting to make sure candidates win in November, um, are also having the support and the two-way information that we need to be as effective as we possibly can be in the legislative fight that's ahead of us in this next month. Well, you leaders know who you are, and it's it's an extraordinary opportunity, and I will have information about that also in the show notes. Uh, Mary Small, it is so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for coming on and joining us as always. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Ingrid Anderson is a former ER nurse and is currently completing her master's to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner. She is also vice chair of the Washington State Nurses Association Political Action Committee Board, and she has recently announced her run for state senate in the 5th Legislative District, which includes Black Diamond, Maple Valley, Issaquah, North Bend, Carnation, Snoqualmie, and parts of Enumclaw and Renton. Hey, Ingrid, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, you know, before we talk about the launch of your campaign, I just want to kind of get some thoughts from you as a healthcare professional. Just can you give us an idea of what you have seen and heard in the fight against COVID here in Western Washington? Sure, I'd love to. So, both myself and my husband work in healthcare. My husband's a respiratory therapist and I'm a nurse. And so we have heard and seen many different things relating to COVID. Uh, I do have to say thank you for everybody who is staying home to flatten the curve. Uh, this week and the data that we're looking at, we have started to see a decrease in the amount of cases that we're seeing coming in. Yeah, it's really However, encouraging. It is. It is really good. Um, it is not a time to get uh, complacent, though. We still need to stay at home at this time to keep that trend going. We, it, it, I cannot stress how critical that is at this time. Um, as far as patients that have been coming in, we have seen a lot of high numbers, um, and there is some serious concern because there is a lack of PPE, which is uh, personal protective equipment is what we call. It's our masks. It's our gowns that we have specialized to keep the droplets. It's the PAPR machines that help create a different airflow so that we can be around somebody who has a positive COVID right. test and not get exposed ourselves. hopefully. However, there is um, a great need for more PPE in, in all of our hospitals. Can I ask you a um, quick, I'm just going to jump in and ask sure. you a quick listener question here. Um, Kathleen Hyman wanted to know what your take is on people being encouraged to sew masks at home for healthcare workers and whether that what she calls can do spirit is in somehow is some way replacing a systems approach at a higher level. You know, I don't want to criticize anybody's idea of thinking out the box out of the box right now because that's where we're at. Um, unfortunately, that is something that we cannot use. The data has not really supported that they will give us the proper coverage that we need. I do wonder, however, if 
um, for people who are not right in the face of somebody doing something that gets the droplets on them, if that would be beneficial to other people in the community who are still having some exposure, but maybe not the same degree of exposure. Um, I don't know if the data reflects that, but I imagine that might be something to look at. Sure. Something else to consider that might be helpful is uh, sewing of surgical caps to okay. keep our hair covered, because that's something that also is something of concerned that we could be carrying a droplet in our hair, touch our hair and then touch somebody else right. and spread it um, unintentionally. So there are still needs. Um, and at some point, at this point, we don't know if we will run out of PPE. Which is so and scary. So, yeah. yeah. And I think what her question is ultimately driving at is a higher systemic response. And that kind of gets into a question about the oh, governmental yes. response. But I will just ask you before I get into that, if you can give us an idea on the latest on testing, because I, I know that that is something that everybody's thinking about right now. Yes, yes. And so the testing has been grossly inadequate. I will not lie. It has been a real struggle to get patients tested and it comes and goes in the, how many tests we have available. There's a lot of um, system issues and supply chain issues that we're having that are on more of a federal level. Mm -hmm. However, University of Washington came up with their own testing based on some of the WHO guidelines. And I, do, I did hear just today that uh, I believe one of the Providence hospitals is coming up and having the ability to do rapid testing, which means that the results could be back um, theoretically in a couple of hours. I heard that from a physician I knew. That sounds very helpful. Providence. Yeah. yeah. So if we could start that trend, it would really help us see the trajectory. Um, I know a lot of systems are also, uh, we don't have it currently available, but looking into antibody screening, and that's something called a titer test. And that's something that we've used in the past for like chickenpox or MMR to see if you've been exposed and if you have a level of immunity. So that's something that I think would be very helpful for us to develop as time goes on and people are starting to go back to the community to determine if it is possible that you have some level of immunity. It's not a sure thing because there's always chances of mutations like with the influenza mm. uh, virus, but at least it would give us some potential guidance um, and data-driven guidance with epidemiology and kind of help us see how, how we're going to fare over time with this. And I think it would also be very vital for people in your position, too, because, of course, uh, yes. healthcare workers who have immunity, they're in a special position uh, and yes. can, you know, can go back on the front lines uh, in, in a more effective way. Let's do shift over and talk about the COVID response at the state and local government level. I definitely want to get your take on that, because as we know, the fifth LD is in King County. It's very near the epicenter of the outbreak of COVID in North America. Give me your thoughts on the local government response here. Sure. I think we are really lucky to have outstanding leadership in our state. Governor Inslee acted so quickly and decisively to address this public health emergency, and he's been collaborating with local leaders like King County Executive Dale Constantine and our local public health leadership. Um, and because so many of our neighbors are following the governor's social distancing and stay at home, stay healthy orders, that really is helping make a significant difference in our state that some states are not going to have because some states are not implementing those um, those intense orders that are absolutely critical to get on top of this. Yeah. Um, we have to protect people who are over 60 years of age, especially um, as well as pregnant women and other people with underlying health conditions, even as simple as asthma. 
um, that could be a really big factor in how somebody recovers or doesn't. Um, so we also need to help protect the health system from becoming overwhelmed. There is a high risk of healthcare workers who may get infected because they don't have the proper protective equipment. And if we can't come to help save our neighbors and our communities, then it's going to have a real systemic effect of how other people are, are going to recover from this as a community. Do you have any thoughts about the legislature's response to all of this this year? And it's, you know, it's, it obviously is pertinent because you yourself are running to be part of the legislature. Did you see anything you liked slash didn't like about their response to this? I think with the information we had at the time, I think they did some amazing work. Um, I think what this really does point to the need for is that we are not funding our state and local public health system efficiently. Washington State is known nationally for our strong public health leadership. However, we've been grossly underfunded in that sector for more than two decades now. And this crisis is really showing the need that we have to to fund the public health system so we can adequately adequately prevent and respond to these kinds of disease outbreaks. You've worked in nursing for most of your professional career, and so uh, people may be wondering why you decided to run for state senate. So why have you uh, decided to throw your hat in the ring? Yeah, there were so many different things that came into this. I started becoming active for patient advocacy and workers' rights some years ago. Um, And one of the big things that first got me into this was I actually had to take my hospital to arbitration just to get rest breaks about 10 years ago. And it was a big deal to get that. But we won and we had these amazing patient outcomes afterwards and our staff retention improved, which is a real big thing when you're looking at the nursing shortage. So I started getting involved on a state level, going down to Olympia, giving testimony on my experience and how much better our system improved after that experience. Specifically nurses being able to get proper breaks just made them better, better nurses. Exactly. And the data shows that patient outcomes improve significantly when a caregiver is not fatigued or overwhelmed. So it makes a big difference. So I would go down to Olympia and give testimony. And um, subsequently, I became the vice chair of the Washington State Nurses Association. Association Political Action Committee um, because I enjoyed that advocacy piece so much. And I got to learn what it meant to pass legislation with partners in the Senate and in the House. But I also came to find out what it was like to come up against lawmakers who were unwilling to listen and unwilling to even sit down at the table and have that conversation. And as I'm going to Olympia and doing this advocacy work, I started meeting other people who were having similar issues with the current state senator in my district. And it was the teachers and environmental groups and people who had a lot of the same core values. And so that started getting me active in the fifth LD, looking more at a, a local level and see what else I could do to maybe help at a local level, not just the state level. So I started becoming more active in the fifth LD and started meeting the most amazing people through door knocking and members of the PCOs of the fifth. I started talking to indivisibles and found out that a lot of people had similar viewpoints that we were not being properly represented. And so as time developed, I just thought it was time for me to step up and go ahead and put my name in the ring. I have a lot of stakeholder groups and individuals who really want to see a change, see somebody who really represents their values. Well, the state senator that you are talking about is Mark Mullet. Uh, and so for those who may not know, he's a Democrat who served for eight years. You are also going to run as a Democrat. So why are you taking him on? 
He's consistently failed to represent our values and priorities. It's really a values check. His vote history shows that he favors big business and he's given them tax breaks, not held them accountable for environmental impacts. He constantly votes against the best interests of working families and our schools, our teachers, and that does not align with my value system. So I'm going to run against him for the seat. Yeah, you've said that you had, would like to educate people on his voting record, and you've, you've ticked off some items. Can you highlight a few specifics where you have disagreed with him? Sure. And there is on my website also at IngridForStateSenate.com a list of vote histories just from the 2019 vote um, that are issues that I think we need to look at. Um, and I will update that too with the most recent session. Um, but some of those are he voted against uh, wage discrimination for women in the workplace. He did not support the Long-Term Care Act for seniors. He voted against the 2019 budget. He was the only Democrat to do that. And by doing that, he he was saying that his values didn't um, align with getting $22 million of, of in-district money for special education and teachers and school safety and mental health programs. Um, he also has been um, a big opposition person for getting our rest breaks bill. He's also not been an advocate in areas that he needs to be an advocate. We don't need just people who are voting yes. We need champions for our issues. And I don't see that in him. I don't see him being a champion for environmental justice or our schools or our healthcare system. It gets to sort of a larger philosophical question on all of those matters. And specifically, I think one of the areas where I see a lot of divergence is in taxation. Uh, we don't have a state income tax, as people know. And I'm just going to toss you kind of a big question here, and it comes from listener Janet Carson. She asks, how could Washington State improve the way it raises revenues and creates budgets? That's a great question that I've, I've thought about a lot. We have to start closing the tax breaks and corporate loopholes that have been put in place to benefit our wealthiest and large corporations. I am not accepting any corporate contributions because they have enough power in Olympia. I'm here because I want to advocate for nurses and teachers and the grocery workers and working families. And I think some of doing that is, is directly going after those loopholes so that other groups are paying, paying their fair share. You mentioned on your website that your priorities include strong education, clean environment, affordable health care, housing, jobs, uh, economic opportunity. Um, those things may shift after COVID. Uh, it may mm -hmm. turn out to be very transformative in terms of how we see those things. And I'll just ask you about a couple. In your mind, how do you think that it might change our approach to an issue like health care and potentially universal health care? Yes, I think this is finally going to get that subject out there in ways that some people thought they didn't need universal health care. So it is now the first of the month. A lot of people have not been working. And as of today, many working families have lost their health coverage. And next month, I imagine that number is going to skyrocket yeah. even more. So I think it's come to the attention, something that I've seen as a healthcare provider that many people are already dealing with not having health coverage. But now lots more people are going to be following that and being aware that having health coverage from our employer isn't maybe as secure as we once thought it was. And it, I think it really stresses the need for us as a government to reframe our approach 
and expand our existing benefits, make it more affordable for everyday people, and hopefully one day transition to something that is more of a single-payer system. At a state level, that wouldn't be my role, but I can absolutely advance for making um, making expansions on a state level here, addressing the, the ridiculous cost of prescription medications and, and, and just access in general. Well, something that may be uh, at the state level and, and therefore in your purview would be some of the economic and employment challenges that we know are coming up as we come out the other side of this. How do you see us taking that on at the state level? Yeah, I think, again, we're going to have a, a big reframing. This pandemic is really highlighting the jobs that are critical to us in a functioning society. And honestly, many of those jobs that are often not given the respect that they deserve. Um, I think teachers is one that's coming yes, up for a lot of parents right now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that. You've probably seen the meme on, on social media that says true heroes of the crisis will be the teachers, grocery workers, janitors, and healthcare workers. That's right. And it's really true, <laughs> especially as everybody's trying to homeschool their kids. We have a whole new level of appreciation, myself included, as my son is uh, i'm i'm learning how to teach in a whole new level it's mm. it's eye-opening but That's i also true. think it's showing uh why we need a strong safety net key changes and investments are being made at the state and federal levels to ensure those who have suddenly lost their livelihood are able to stay afloat through this crisis however we need these protections right now in a big way and many people in our communities need these protections to be there at other times when things go wrong, um, even when there's not a pandemic happening. And so I think we have a real opportunity to look at the basic essential needs and services and make a commitment to lead with compassion and ensure that we're taking care of our people and our communities. You are a first-time candidate, um, and even with all the challenges of being a first-time candidate, you're going to now mm -hmm. have to run essentially during a pandemic. Um, <laughs> you cannot canvas. You can't do rallies. What's your game plan here? You know, in my background uh, as an emergency room nurse, I learned to thrive under chaos mm. and stress. <laughs> so I think that's actually going to give me a huge edge on this, is that I am used to dealing with high-stakes situations in the worst of environments. So I have a great plan moving forward, and I think it's going to be good to have have my just coming to the table because I'm going to have that fresh perspective. I'm going to have a real strong digital presence. I'm going to do a lot of phone banking as though, and, and my volunteers will, as though they're door knocking, but we're going to be calling people. And I think people are going to want to answer because they're, they're tired of being home. Um, yeah. We're going to do a lot of <laughs> yeah, postcard <exactly>. writing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going to do a lot of online videos and forums. And some of it will be geared at, Hey, I'm a candidate. These are things that I believe in. This is why I'm running. And some are just going to be outreach. Hey, I'm a nurse. These are things that I have found that might be beneficial to you in our community. Here's resources. And we're also going to start calling just our neighbors just to check in on them. See, how are you doing as a person? And is there anything you need? And as we find people in our community that are having needs, hooking them up with the resources that they need so that they know that I really am going to show up. I am here for you. I'm not doing this just for me. It's it's really to better our community. And I think that whole presence is something that will be really refreshing and something we, we desperately need right now. Well, you know, I, I was going to ask you earlier uh, how you your background as a nurse has informed your philosophy potentially as a candidate and as a legislator, but I think you just answered that. Um, you mentioned that you're not taking any PAC money, you're not taking any corporate money. How are you going to be funding your campaign? 
Another great question. So I I think that this is going to be an amazing grassroots uh, campaign. I have been just so excited with the amount of people who, even during this crisis, and maybe they don't have a lot of money, they are helping because they believe in the mission. They believe in the cause. And it is warming my heart unlike any other. Um, so even though I've only been campaigning for just about three weeks or so, I'm almost at $25,000 because oh, wow, that's people... Great believe in this. And that is significant in this crisis that we're going through right now. And I think we need that hope, that reason. And I think we need a nurse in the state legislature to, to go ahead and moving forward. We are going to have a lot of recovery to do. We're going to have a lot of recovery with our healthcare system. Uh, there's going to a lot of be a lot of financial impact. Yeah. It's going to be a systemic thing. And that's something that as a nurse, I'm really good at looking at a holistic person. We don't just look at the medical stuff. We look at every impact that affects a person. And so that's going to help. I also have a great support of a lot of labor groups. Um, and while I yeah, have you've got really a number of endorsements that, recently, I do. And I'm very proud of it. So, so far, I have endorsements for all of the healthcare uh, unions across the state, including Washington State Nurses Association, SEIU 1199. UFCW 21. I also have SEIU 925. And I also have the sole endorsement of the teachers, which I think speaks volumes. Yeah. Well, congratulations on all of that. And uh, you've mentioned you. your uh, information before, but give us your website one more time so people yeah. can go there, donate, uh, get involved. Oh, yes. I would love to. So it is Ingrid, I-N-G-R-I-D, for F-O-R, statesenate.com. All right, great. Ingrid, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck. Stay healthy and safe and all that. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to talking again soon. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thank you to Kenny Palmer. Special thanks always to Lori Caldwell. And also my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.